what I want to do this morning is I want to take you to a specific chapter, a credible chapter in the Word of God. But before I do that, I want to set the stage. I want to draw back and show you wide angle what the Bible says or how the Bible emphasizes one specific subject. How pervasive and all-encompassing this subject is for you in the eyes of God. I'm going to do that by just reading for you several verses. And I'm going to read a verse, and at the end I'm going to ask a question, and I want you to answer my question with a one-word answer. Out loud, one-word answer. It's going to be pretty simple. Matter of fact, the word is going to be the same every time. Second Chronicles 5.13 God is good and His steadfast love endures forever. What will endure forever? God's love. God's love. Psalms 33.5 The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. What fills the earth? God's... Come on. What fills the earth? God's... Yeah. Psalms 36.5, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. What not only fills the earth, but actually extends to the very heavens. God's, there you go. Psalms 89.1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. What one attribute does the writer of the psalm here say is worth singing about forever? God's. Proverbs 10, 12, love covers all offenses. What has the power to cover every offense? Love. Matthew 27, Matthew 22, 37 to 40. And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What did Jesus say is God's greatest commandment? Oh, come on. What did Jesus say is God's greatest commandment? And what is the one commandment that supports all of the rest of the law of God? It is love. <laughs> right on. I like that. John 13, 34, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. How did Jesus command us to live with each other? We are to live in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. What's the one great proof that you're a follower of Christ? It is your Romans 13, 8. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. How can we fulfill the law of God? We can fulfill it by... Okay, we're tapering off a little bit now. Keep the fire stoked, okay? 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Let all that you do be done in love. What are we to temper everything that we do with? Love. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. 
I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height and length and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What did Paul pray that the church would know about Christ? He prayed that they would know Christ's love. Colossians 3.14, and above all these virtues, he's given a list of virtues, and above all these virtues put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What one virtue holds together every other virtue? It is love. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. What does Peter want us to keep doing toward one another earnestly? We are to love. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Are you getting the point here? Let me just put an exclamation point on it with a run-on statement here. Here's the biblical summary. And I, I just gave you a little sampling of what God's Word says about that subject. But do you see how central and comprehensive it is in the heart of God toward us. Here's the biblical summary. God's heart toward you, God's actions regarding you, His gifts for you, His desire from you, His commands to you, His plans concerning you, His work in you, His work through you is built upon, saturated with, sustained within, directed by, and accomplished through the relentless, abounding, unfailing, indescribable, forever enduring, life-defining, law-fulfilling, sin-covering, earth-filling, heaven-reaching, unconquerable way of love. So, here's the big truth for today. Here's the big truth for today. The unmistakable message of the Word of God is this. The greatest use of life is love. The greatest use of life is love. You want to live a life of excellence? then live a life of love because that is how the Scripture defines a life of excellence. So if that is the priority of God for us, and it clearly is, then how can you and I Learn to live a life of love. Where can we turn so that we can learn to line up our life with the truth of God's Word related to love? Well, God has inspired, I mean, a lot of places, but God has inspired one chapter of the Bible in particular that talks about this subject, that defines it and teaches you and I how to live a life of love. If you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 
it will be a miracle of tremendous proportions if I am able to do what I am intending to do, and that is get through the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. But whether we get to the end or not, hopefully the truth will be clear by the time I'm done. The greatest use of life is love. And there is a certain way that we need to live, so we flesh that out. The, the last statement, the last sentence of chapter 12, the setup for chapter 13, is this statement. Paul writes, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Here's what you have in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You have the manual from God above on how to live a life of love. And it is God's great purpose and hope for you, plan and design for you to do that. So let's look at this chapter toward that end. And what I want to do is I want to break up the chapter into three segments. I think it fits nicely in three segments. And the first one covers verses 1 to 3. And what I'm going to do for each of these is I'm just going to I'm going to give a statement that I believe is an overarching statement. And by the time we're done with that section, hopefully it'll make sense, even if it does not initially. And the statement that I want to put over verses 1 to 3 is this, that love equips. Love equips. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing." Some pretty powerful, profound statements that Paul makes there about love and the importance of it. To feel and understand the full force of what Paul is saying here, you really need to understand the context into which this chapter was written, the church to which this chapter was written. You see, this is a very practical letter written by the Apostle Paul to a very specific group of people in a very specific time that were facing a very specific set of circumstances. And Paul is addressing what he has heard about the church at Corinth in his letter, helping them to understand the heart and mind and truth of God related to what was going on in their church. So he wrote this for a reason, and here's the reason, one of them. In, you'll pick this up if you read chapters 12 and 13 and 14, particularly in this letter. But there was some within the church that were using one of the spiritual gifts 
as a way to assess and evaluate other people's lives on whether they had it or they didn't to determine their level of spirituality, particularly the gift of tongues. And so Paul is addressing this competition, this division, this attitude in the life of the church. And in verse 1, with that in mind, think about the practicality of verse 1 where he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. What's Paul's point here? His point is that anyone with the gift of tongues that didn't display the attitudes and actions of love, that that gift that they exercised did not help the church at all. In fact, in fact, he goes beyond that. He says it's actually an annoyance. It's like a clanging gong or a cymbal if that gift does not flow out of the heart of love. If it is not used with the mindset of love. Verse 2, Paul brings up some additional gifts. He talks about the gift of prophecy or preaching. He talks about the gift of knowledge and the gift of faith. In fact, in verse 2, he says, if I have so much faith that I can say to these mountains, get up and throw yourselves, get up and move, but I have not love, then I am nothing. You see, even a person, and one of the striking things here is that the gift of prophecy or the gift of preaching was a gift that he would say, Paul said, are some of the greater gifts. And yet he says, you can have that in incredible degree. And if you have not love, it's nothing. Finally, in verse 3, he drives the point as deeply as possible. And he says, man, if I have this giving spirit where I give everything that I own to those in need. And not only do I not stop at just what I own, but I actually sacrifice my own life unto death but I do that without love, then it is nothing. If the motive behind it and the acting force within it is not love, then I would gain nothing. So what's the summary lesson of these three verses? They teach us that love must be the motive or animating force behind all of our service. But let me take that even a step further, more specific. That in the exercise of our gifts, that love must be the motivating and the animating force behind all of those or they are absolutely useless to the church. You see, love is what makes our gifts effective and our lives influential in God's economy. Let me say that again. Love 
is what makes our gifts effective and our lives influential in God's economy. That's why over these three verses I put love equips. Love is what enables you to be used by God through the giftings of the Spirit. All of it must be conditioned by love. Section 2. And over verses 4 to 7, I'd put this statement, love acts, love acts. Verse 4 through 7, Paul continues, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. An obvious characteristic here of Paul's description of love is that it is something that has action with it. It doesn't act this way, but it acts this way. You see, love, though commonly talked about in the arena of emotion, is not primarily an emotion. I'm not saying that love doesn't have an emotion to it, but Biblically defined, love is an action. Love is a commitment. Love is a way of life. It's the acting force that motivates and compels, or it is to be that. Now, I said at the beginning as we were going through that list of verses that God is love. It says in Scripture that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Matter of fact, Jesus said to his disciples the night of his arrest, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if God is love, let's just check this out kind of mathematically here. If God is love, and if Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, if you see the Father when you see Jesus, then Jesus must also be what? Love. So let's just hold his life up to the definition in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, by this. Let's insert his name, let's take out love and put his name in and see if this changes the meaning of the text in any way. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Ladies and gentlemen, every one of those statements were true. Inserting his name in there did not change the meaning of that text in any degree. 
Jesus is love. But what is the purpose of the Word of God? God did not give you the Word to increase your knowledge. He gave you the Word to change your life. So, what are we to do with this passage of Scripture? We're to do the same thing that the church of Corinth was supposed to do. They were supposed to take the statements of truth and they were to apply them to their own circumstances, flush them out in their day-to-day life until their lives were more and more lining up with God's plan for them and that is to live a life of love. We're to take this text the same way. We're to read this as a letter to Cornerstone Church and to say, whatever is going on in my life, whatever is going on around me as a follower of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, the way that you should be living your life in the midst of all of your circumstances is to be living a life of love. It's God's plan for you. It is the model of the life of Jesus Christ, whom God wants you to be like, saved you, called you to conform you into His image. So what we're going to do now is we're going to get a little personal. We're going to bring it to our doorsteps here. And these statements in verses 4 to 7, we're going to look at them quickly one at a time and ask the question, can I insert my name in there? Is this true of my life? And what I believe will happen, clearly happened the first service, like testimony of several that uh, came up to me after uh, service, that the Spirit of God, what He's going to do as we're going through this, is He's going to be tapping you on the shoulder and saying, this is one you need to work on right here. Okay, we're at your door now. Rubbers meet in the road right here with you. First of all, Paul writes, love is patient. I'm going to give you on each one of these a byline, and then I'll explain it. What I believe this is talking about is that love does not live with retaliation, or love is without retaliation. It says love is patient. Now, be careful not to read that and just assume that he's thinking circumstances like, I'm patient in the midst of trying circumstances. Instead, read it in its context, into the context that was taking place in the first church. There was relational division going on. They were fighting amongst themselves. They were grading each other spiritually based upon what gift they have or did not have. You see, primarily the focus here is about hard to get along with people, not hard to deal with circumstances, which makes it a whole lot tougher of a Scripture to handle. 
So with that in mind, with the focus on difficult, trying people in your life, listen to the inspired text that says love is patient. What that means is that when people mistreat you, when people abuse you, when people do things to you that is unwarranted, what love will do is it will resist the human tendency to react in retaliation. Love will not lash back, but it will be patient and enduring with those trying people. And what will it do? It comes with the next word that are given in combination. Love is not only patient, but love is patient and kind. Here's the byline. It extends good to others. So put those two together then, patience and kindness. They're complementary actors on the stage of love. And here's what they do. When they are wronged, when the individual is wronged, what patience does is it doesn't retaliate and what kindness does is that instead of reacting and lashing back, it extends kindness toward the one that has wronged. So here's a question. How you doing? How you doing? Is Brad patient? and kind. What I want to do with most of these is I want to give you a practical action step or two that you can take. If as we're going through this, Spirit of God just tapped on your shoulder, just knocked on your heart, said, okay, I'm here and we need to address this. I'm going to give you a couple of practical action steps to take. One could be this. Write on a card, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 to 7. Write it out. Maybe you have a note card. I'm going to read it for you really quickly. This is a prophetic picture 700 years before Jesus Christ came from the prophet Isaiah that perfectly described what happened to Jesus and how he would respond. Isaiah, looking forward into the future toward Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
Whenever you are mistreated, someone unjustly acts toward you or accuses you, mistreats you in some way, pull out your Isaiah chapter 53 card, read it, look at the example of Jesus Christ, the one who endured the worst that humanity could dish out, being the perfect model of holy humanity, yet dealt with the worst humanity could dish out, and yet he did not retaliate. He patiently endured, and in kindness, in indescribable kindness and love, offered his life to help us. And read that and say, oh, Jesus, help me to be like you. Help me not to retaliate. Not to retaliate, but to extend good to others, i.e., to be patient and kind. Next, Paul says, love does not envy. Matter of fact, let me give you one more action step under that. Go to someone who has mistreated you and do something kind for them. Now, listen. I mean out of a genuine heart, not I'm going to just do something so nice, just going to rub salt. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, honestly, get on your face before God, ask God to give you the right heart, and genuinely do something kind toward them. Be a great exercise for you. It'll be taking a step in the footsteps of Jesus. Then Paul writes, love does not envy. Here's the byline. Celebrate others' blessings. Celebrate others' blessings. Do you know the heart of envy has a root of malice in it? Because what is envy? What envy is, is envy sees what you've got and it gets upset about it and it wishes that it could take what you've got and have it for me so that you don't have it and I do. It's really wanting ill for someone else and good for you. And there are so many ways that we can envy, so many categories of life that we can envy over. And I just want to point a few of these out again so we can just come right home to our door. We could envy material blessings such as the beautiful house or the balance sheet with a bunch of zeros or the nice car or the vacations several times a year or whatever material possessions could be a lure for our envy. Not only that, but relational blessings. Relational blessings. Such as a very healthy beautiful married relationship, a beautiful wife and a considerate husband and children that are exceptional in obedience to their parents when it's not in your home. You can envy that. You can look and say, why do they get everything? 
You could envy physical blessings. Trim waistline. Covering over the skin up here. Whatever it is. Spiritual blessings. You ready for this one? How about the envy that comes when God uses somebody else in a great way? How do you respond to that? Do you say, man, I wish that could have been me? Or do you rejoice over God using them in a profound way? Maybe they have the gift of communication and you wish so badly that you had that. Or they have the gift of artistic ability and you wish so badly you could do that. Or they have the gift of wisdom or counsel and you wish you could give those great statements of counsel and life direction. We can envy a lot of different ways. How are you doing on your envy meter? Love does not envy. Do you celebrate when someone else is promoted? Does a living example of a vibrant marriage and obedient, respectful children give your heart joy? when it's someone else's home? The envy. If the Spirit of God is tapping on your heart here, there's a couple things that you can do. One, I just confess to God and say, God, I see this. I'm, I'm agreeing with you. You know what the confession is? It's agreeing with God. I'm agreeing that this is in my heart and I just... I want to state it. I see you're showing this to me, and I want you to know I see it. Confessing that to you. Basically, God, you're accurate. You're true. It's right. That's true. That's me. And then find a tangible way to express your joy over somebody else's success. I mean, I don't mean just you get in your closet and say, oh, praise God, they got that. You know, I mean, actually do something tangible for them, with them, that expresses your joy over their advancement, their success, their blessing. Paul writes, love does not boast and is not arrogant. Here's the byline. This might sound a little out of place, but I, hopefully I can explain what is behind it? Live in full dependency on God. It's the positive side of the statement. Love does not boast and is not arrogant. Positive side, live in full dependency on God. I'm going to illustrate this with a balloon. Arrogance and boasting are like hot air in a balloon. Arrogance is like the balloon all blown up and puffed up. I haven't tried this balloon. Hopefully I can do this here. Pressure's on. Don't turn my mic down because I want them to hear this. So there's the, there's the puffed up heart, right? And whenever a heart is puffed up, a life is puffed up, is arrogant, it wants to find an outlet, right? Just like this balloon wants to find an outlet. 
And that outlet is through boasting. That to everyone else around usually sounds like this. enjoyable <laughs> the balloon likes it but that's about the only one that likes it arrogance to boasting love is not arrogant and it does not boast you see this is so counter to the truth that says that every good and perfect gift comes from who? Comes from God. Comes from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. How many? Every. Can we say that, church? How many? Every. That means, oh, wait a minute, Brad. You know, God gave me some natural abilities and kind of set it up. I mean, I worked really hard to accomplish what I accomplished. I doubt that you did. But who gave you the strength to do that? Who gave you the mind to be able to think on how to do that? Who gave you the strength to perform the action? Who gave you the days and the months and the years so that you could get that done? Who gave you the circumstances around you that provided the opportunity? Who birthed you into that home, into that family, into that country that enabled that to happen? I mean, endless. It is all from God. Every bit of it is from God. So arrogance and boasting is so absolutely against the truth that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. So that's why when Paul writes, love does not boast and is not arrogant, that I think the positive side of that statement is that love lives in full dependency on God. It recognizes that it is all of God. And that I don't do this even one time, even one time, unless God enables it to happen. How are you doing in the area of dependency? Knocking at your door here. How are you doing in the area of dependency? Do you recognize daily your need of God and ask Him for His help? It's a good way to answer that question. How dependent are you? Are you dependent so that you're saying every day, God, give us, give me this day my daily bread? Your prayer life will validate your dependency or your independency. Doesn't lie. If the Spirit of God is tapping on your heart and saying, okay, here's one. You need to work on this. Let me give you a couple things you can do. Take a sheet of paper. 
and write on that sheet of paper on the top either God's blessings or every good gift and just list. Maybe do this. I don't know how often you'll need to do it. You need to gauge this with the Spirit. Maybe every week, start the week off where you just fill that sheet of paper with every good gift you can think of that God has given you. You actually write it down. You move your hand so that your thought is thinking through it, untangling itself through the lips and fingertips. You speak it out. You write it down. You see it there. What you're doing when you do that is you're reinforcing the truth that every gift is from God. It's not from you. That'll, that'll come right against a boastful heart, an arrogant heart, if you're continually seeing the goodness of God in your life and turn that into a thank list in prayer. Give thanks to God for all of this. Boy, that'll help humble the heart to show you it's all from God, not from you. Secondly, this might seem out of place maybe initially, read and study the life of Jesus. Read and study the life of Jesus. Okay, who was Jesus? He was God in the flesh. He is the co-equal, co-eternal, second member of the Trinity who left heaven's throne and made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Philippians chapter 2. God did that. Study the life of the servant Jesus Christ, the sovereign king of the universe, yet the servant of man. Study the life of Jesus, God in a manger. God who spans the heavens in one step, depending upon a little teenage girl to help him with his first step. God, who never sleeps nor slumbers, using a rock for his pillow along the shores of Palestine. Ultimately, The God who gave life to it all, hanging on a cross unto death. That is humbling. You see, here's the way it works. Remember, Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. You want to know God? You look to Jesus. He is God. And here's the way it works. The greater that you know God, the clearer your view of God, the more correct your vision of God, the more correct your vision of you. Always true. 
Just one example, Isaiah chapter 6. He saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. And what did Isaiah say when he saw that vision of God in his holiness and glory? He cried out and he said, I am ruined. He saw God correctly. He saw God clearly. And he saw himself correctly, himself clearly. What we need to battle a heart, and folks, listen, I can promise you this, everybody in this room has a problem with arrogance and pride. I believe that it's like the root from all which other vices flow. We need to look to the life of Jesus, get to know God and see His goodness till it humbles us in its purifying revelation so that we see ourselves correctly. And it continually burns out in that holy revelation the roots of pride that want to spring up in our hearts. Next, Paul says, love is not rude and does not seek its own way. Work for the good of others. We've got to speed through these. Work for the good of others. How are you doing that? Let me give you two things to try. If the Spirit of God's knocking on your heart saying, well, you need to do this right here. For one month, for one month, 30 days, do not seek to get your way one single time. Let's try that. I mean about anything, just one, one month, try to mark it down for 30 days. Do not try to get your way. Guys, this is going to be a monumental <laughs> challenge for you. Amen. Here's another one. Love does not, is not rude, doesn't seek his own way. Help somebody else accomplish a goal they have. Right? Love doesn't look to its own interest, but looks to the interest of others, puts the interests of others over themselves. Come alongside of somebody's life and try to help them. Find out if you have some close relationships, you probably know some goals that your friends have come alongside their lives and help them succeed in their goal. Next, Paul writes, love is not irritable or resentful. Okay, we're coming to the door here. It's going to be a tough one. Love is not irritable or resentful. When we are irritable or resentful, you know what's behind that? We are protecting our rights. We are defending what we believe is an injustice towards us. We have rights. They've been offended. They've been abused. And we are standing up for and protecting our rights. I'm going to give you two statements to help evaluate your life in this. A person that is irritable and resentful has two things, a short fuse and a long list. A short fuse and a long list. Here's the short fuse. 
You kind of live life right on the boiling point. It's just simmering right above the steam, blowing the top. And all it takes is a little nudge, a little bump, a little irritation, and it sets you off because your rights have been abused. Short fuse. Here's the problem with that. When you became a follower of Jesus Christ, you gave up your rights. You were bought and paid for. Scripture says, He bought you with a price, His own redemption blood. And in that purchase, what that means is that all of your rights are now His. You don't own them anymore. <laughs> Have some waving at me. <laughs> yeah, you don't own them anymore. They're all his. So you need to let him take care of his rights. Not you trying to defend your own. They're his. Secondly, a long list. Some can be like an accountant where they keep a list of every wrong done a long list, every infraction. They write it in the liability ledger under that person's name. I don't, I don't mean that they do this literally, but in their mind, they've got the list, the long list. Some of you right now know exactly what I'm talking about. But let me just reason with you for a minute. That does not give you freedom. That's bondage. That is pure bondage because what happens is you review that list and the offense is repeated in your mind and you run over that list and you're offended and it grows in your mind. When nothing else is being done, it continues to hurt and to damage you. That's bondage. It's bondage. But love is not irritable or resentful. You see, love has a long fuse. It's very hard to set love off. And it has a short list, record of wrongs. Matter of fact, it's a list that is continually being erased by forgiveness. How are you doing? Here's what I'd encourage you to do. Action steps Take out a piece of paper. The Spirit of God's knocking on your heart here. Take out a piece of paper. List out all of what you believe are your personal rights, things that would normally be considered by an individual. These are my personal rights. Write as many down as you can. And then in prayer, present that list to God and say, God, these are not mine. These are all yours. I gave them up because you gave it all for me to actually go through that literal exercise. And then, secondly, make a list of all the wrongs that were committed to you and then burn the list. Just torch it. Get rid of it. Paul goes on to say, and I, let me just finish this up. He says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
my byline here would be a view of life from heaven's perspective. Heaven's perspective helps you to see sin clearly for what it is so that you don't rejoice at wrongdoing, but you rejoice with the truth because you see how truth blesses everything it touches. That's heaven's perspective. That's the accurate perspective. Even sin that's fun, you see it for the damage that it does from heaven's perspective so that you don't rejoice at wrongdoing, but you rejoice with the truth. And then love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Here's what I would say there. Believe the best about others. You see, I believe what that's talking about, one of the things that's talking about is you actually take a, pros, a protective stand toward the reputation of other people. Did you hear that? You're actually ready to defend them, to believe the best, expect the best. When somebody brings the bad report, you don't even want to hear that. Instead, you say, no, I'm not going to listen to that, and you stop it. Or if they say, state it before you can stop it, then you respond with something positive. You respond with the good that you see in that person because what does love do? Believes the best, hopes the best, trusts. See, God wants us to live a life of love because that kind of a life is the greatest use of a life. It's the life that Jesus lived. It's a life that has the power to touch other people around it in a contagious way so that Christ is exalted and people are drawn to Him because that's not normal for a human. Christ is seen in that kind of a life. What we're going to do to end this service is we're going to take communion. And what communion is, it's symbols that represent the greatest demonstration of love. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrated His own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So in communion, we are remembering that the Holy Son of God willingly sacrificed His body and spilled His blood to pay for the penalty of sin to reunite us with the Holy God. So if you're a Christian, this meal is for you. This bread representing His broken body, this juice representing His spilled blood is an opportunity for you to do what Jesus told us to do, and that is to remember His death until He returns. So ushers, would you come and begin to distribute those? You can take the bread and juice and receive it as you get it. Let me just pray a prayer blessing here. God, I just ask that you would help us to reflect upon the great sacrifice that you paid, remembering what you've done, who you are, and that you won the victory and are coming again. Christ's name I pray. Amen.